So the opening discussion that I want you to, to do at your tables today is based off of the reading. Now, again, the reading's not required. It's not like, it's not like this is a pass-fail course, but if you can do the reading, it's helpful. And the second set, the, the, most of the reading has two parts. The second part that you had this time was uh, really talking about the importance of the gathered body. That, that what, what really, the, the activity of the church that is indispensable is that the church actually gets together. And as, as I was refreshing myself in that and kind of reading back through it, uh, I thought about uh, a more modern um, challenge to the gathered body, which has been the rise of church online. Now, let me start by saying, I think um, Church Online was a huge benefit to us in the early days of COVID. I think Church Online is a benefit still to people who, for one reason or another, are the word that our elders use is providentially hindered. That, that, that because, of, because of a situation in their life, illness, sickness, the inability to leave the house, that they're able to, in, in at least that way, join in with what we're doing. They're able to hear the teaching. They're able to be a part of the worship. But for all of us, if you did church online, even if all you did was the eight weeks that we were online for, for, for when we were actually not allowing people to come, and then for a lot of people, they did it longer than that, everybody that came back said the same thing. It's just not the same. right? It's just not the same. But with that technology, um, a, a lot, of, lot of churches have made the decision to really lean into it. And so I think to, the, to our detriment, we're actually seeing churches now with online campuses. I actually read, I mean, a, a church in Hampton Roads, I'm not going to name it, but a church in Hampton Roads has created a church in the metaverse. You can put on your Facebook goggles and like walk it. They built a building. <laughs> it was a whole thing. And, but you do, you're, on your, you're on your couch as you do it. And so I'm not talking about those that, that for medical reasons or for whatever. Hmm? Does it have people in it? Well, I guess you can kind of see the other people that are, I don't know how the metaverse works, Barry, but I think, you, I think that's the way it works. Right, Brandon? No, no, no I'm not doing the, I'm not doing it though. So I'm not talking about those that, that are providentially hindered and needed. I'm saying with this question, based on the assigned reading about the importance of gathering as a church, what are the dangers a church faces by promoting online participation, notice this word, in place of regular in-person gathering? So I'm not talking about you, you had surgery or you're sick or you're, you're traveling. I'm talking about, I mean, because I watched our worship service from um, the Atlanta airport last Sunday, when, when I, the Sunday before last, when, when I wasn't here. Uh, but that's not the same as being here, is, is it? And so um, what, what, what are the dangers? Based on that reading that you did about the importance of the assembly, what, what are the dangers if, as a society progresses, we keep leaning into um, thinking that somehow that is a one-to-one -one replacement for church? So talk about that for just a couple of minutes at your table, and then I'll bring us together. All right, folks. So I heard, I tried to listen to several tables. I heard some really good things. It seems like 
a lot of you have done the reading because it seems like you were saying things that maybe read in the book that um, I think a lot of it boils down to really our outlook and definition of what the church is. And we've talked about this some over the previous weeks that when we, I think I asked it in the very first week, you, you talked about this, is a church isn't a thing that we go to. It's not an event that we attend. It's not in a concert that we even participate in. Church is a people that we belong to. The local church is a people. And while we know you can have some connection with people uh, in, a, in a digital space, um, you, you can't have uh, the kind of meaningful connection that you can when you're shoulder to shoulder with one another. Uh, it, it, was, it was even why early on during, during uh, you know, the 2000 in 2020 that, that we really wanted to, as, as in whatever way we could, as best we could, give people the opportunity to be here in person. It's because there, there's something that's, that's, that's unattainable in other ways. And then when, when, when we write our minds to that, then what we start to see is a lot of the other things that you started talking about. I heard things like, you can't practice, it's much more difficult to practice accountability in church discipline. But it is, right? It's, it's a lot harder to know um, what's really happening in somebody's life and be invested in, in somebody's life. It's, um, th- these things become so much, more, so much more difficult for us the actual practices of the church. And so um, I, hope, I hope that's not the future of the church. I, I, actually, I believe it is not. What I believe to be true about the biblical church is it, it, it's not the future. Maybe this is just a blip in the radar screen of something churches are going to try and ultimately see it, it, it is unsuccessful um, because you can't replicate... Uh, you can't replicate in-person church because that's the only way that church really exists in the biblical sense is, is in person. Um, and, and anything else is kind of a, a poor substitute for that. And so we're, we're going to talk about today, this first se- section, being a member of a local church. When, when we think about the question, who is a part of the church, that's what we're trying to answer today. We're really talking about membership. And church membership becomes a really touchy subject for people. Um, I, I have conversations fairly regularly. I wouldn't say all the time, but fairly regularly with people who either attend our church that have no intentions of joining our church um, or just people who, who are asking questions in, in one form or another about church membership. And... People have developed through experiences um, and oftentimes negative experiences and hurts surrounding mem- church membership. Uh, they, they've developed their own ideas, and, and, and when, they would, when you would ask the question, you know, why do I need to be a member of a church, they, they, they've determined their own answer that I don't think is really biblically based. Now, let's just from the outset recognize something. 
Uh, being a member of a local church, meaning you have your name on the roll of a local church, does not make you a Christian, right? It doesn't. That, that's not what saves someone. Um, and not having your name on the roll of a local church doesn't make you not a Christian. Right? You, you, you can, you know... Going and standing in a garage doesn't make you a car, right? You, you, just because you go to church, it doesn't make you a Christian. Just because you don't go to the church doesn't, doesn't mean you're not one. Like that, that's, that, I think that's assumed in here. I think everybody under, understands that. But, but there is something biblical and, and I think very important uh, to, the, to the, really the, the whole nature of what we see playing out uh, in the New Testament from Acts through the, the apostles' letters and even in Revelation, if you're, if you're paying attention to it, there's something just essential to the, to the very nature of what's going on there that, that is the commitment of individual people to individual local churches. And so that, that's what we want to talk about in, the, in, in this first part. First, let, let's just recognize from the outset that all believers are members of the universal church. That's, we've, we've talked about universal and local, invisible, visible, right? These are synonyms talking about the big C, capital C church, the universal church, which God alone sees. It's all people, you know, all, all people of, of God for all time, that He is redeemed in Jesus Christ, that this is the church, but that the local church is the local expression of that. And so we, we want to make sure that we're clear that all Christians are a part of the universal church, and you don't join it. You don't enroll in it. You don't sign up for it. Um, we, we even say in our, in our core beliefs that the, the Holy Spirit places all believers into the universal church when they, when they come to faith, right? This is we become part of this bigger whole, this God's family, the bride of Christ, all these things. We become a part of that when we're saved. And so um, regardless of where your church membership is, if you even have a church membership, regardless of where that is, if you are in Christ, you are in his church. And, and you don't sign up for that or remove your membership for that. Uh, you're in it. If, if you're truly in it, you're in it, right? But what we're talking about is membership of the local church. And, and so I want us to explore some things in the scriptures about the local church that kind of help us see the importance of church membership and the importance of the local church um, identifying. Because some churches do exist. There are churches um, that, that do exist that don't actually have a membership role. Um, there are, there are denominations formed around the idea that people don't join churches, that, that you can just, you know, kind of go to a church. I, I just don't really understand how that works. And I really don't understand it in the context of, of what we see in scripture, because the commitment level that we see in scripture and the importance that we see of an individual's commitment to the local church and the local church's commitment to individuals um, I think it requires of us to have some kind of, and you don't have to, a church doesn't have to do it exactly like we do it to be doing it biblically, but it requires of us to have some kind of organizational structure 
that, that allows a person to say, I am a part of that. that. That family of faith, that local church, Nansman River Baptist Church for us, right? That I am a part of that. And, and, and it, it's, it's like me saying I'm a part of my family, that, that the Bryce family is this thing that I'm a part of and, and I'm, I'm joined with them, right? That, that that's, that's how important it is for us to be able to say I'm, I'm a part of this local church. Um, so let's start in Matthew 16. If you have your Bibles, there's a couple of places in Matthew I want us to, to start. The first is in Matthew 16. And Jesus isn't, this interaction here isn't directly dealing with the local church, but, but it's an important interaction that Jesus has uh, with his disciples. And he says something that is, is really important for us as we think about what does it mean for a person to be a part of the local church. So listen to this. In Matthew uh, chapter 16, I'm going to back up. It says on uh, the board there, it says starting in verse 16, but I want to back all the way up to verse 13. You give the context here. Now, when Jesus came to the, the, the district of Caesarea Philippi, this is the northernmost section of Israel, place where pagan worship had happened for thousands of years. He asked his disciples, who do the people say that I am? Or who do the people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and others Jeremiah, and one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered, and blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, that's what that word means, on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So there we see, the, again, the divine secret like we've been seeing in Mark. But the reason I wanted to read all of this is because what we see here is, is, a, is a very clear statement of faith, right? That Peter is saying, you are, by Peter saying, you are the Christ, son of the living God. Peter's making a, public profession of faith. And then Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church. Now he called him Simon, which was his, his Hebrew name, and he renames him Peter, which means the rock. And then, Je- but then Jesus says, on this rock, I'll build my church. The Catholic church has taken that to mean that it was on Peter. And so that this was the beginning of the papal secession, papal line. And this is why it's important for the Catholic Church, to trace the Bishop of Rome back through the centuries to Peter. The question really is, even though Jesus calls Peter the rock, what is the real foundation that that the church is built on in Matthew 16? It's Jesus and Peter's profession of faith as Jesus as the Son of the living God. So we can say that the foundation of the church the entry into the church is the gospel. And when, when Jesus says, I tell you, um, I will give you, in verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven, that these keys of the kingdom belong not to Peter, but to those who make the profession of faith that Peter makes. Meaning, it's the local church 
that has the keys to the kingdom. That we, this does not negate anything I've said about the universal church. The Holy Spirit of God upon people being saved places people into the universal church, the invisible church. But we can't see that, can we? We don't know who's in that. So what is it that we're binding on earth and binding in heaven and loosing on earth and loosing in heaven? We're, we're binding and loosing people's professions of faith. That the church is actually the visible church, the local church, is, is the door, is the gatekeepers of the visible kingdom of heaven. And, and that we have, the, we have the keys to that. And so it's, it's, you, you can see some significant responsibility then being placed upon the people of God to identify the profession of faith of others. Now we get just a couple of chapters later into Matthew chapter 18. And in Matthew chapter 18, uh, Jesus deals with church discipline. And what's interesting is we really don't even have a church yet. And Jesus is already dealing with church discipline because Again, the, the keys to the kingdom belong to the church. Now, we're in two weeks, we're going to deal substantially with church discipline. I'm just touching on it from, from an importance of church membership standpoint. But li- listen to what he says, starting in verse 15. He says, if a brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If, you, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, tell, let him be as, uh, to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whoever binds on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. And again I say to you, if two or you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for you by them, uh, by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among you. Now again, this, the context of this is church discipline, but do you notice the language in Matthew 18 and the language in Matthew 16 are the same? That there's, there's this keys to the kingdom that the local church has. One really is kind of the key to the front door, that, that we're admitting people into the local church who have made a credible profession of faith like Peter does in Matthew 16. And, and notice the gravity of this that the church also has the keys to the back door. That that it's the local church that's able to say to someone, you are not living a life that is that that, that evidences that that provides evidence of the gospel in your life and you are unrepentant in that. Cuz that's that's the progression that Jesus makes. Right? This isn't just because someone sins, they're not living a life of evidence of the gospel. But this is a person who is living a life of sin and has been confronted now three times in their sin. Once by one person, once by two people, and then by the entire church. It's been presented to the entire church, and the person is unwilling to repent of their sins. And what does Jesus instruct the, the, the church to do? To use the keys and to remove the person from from the fellowship. Now, if this was a class on the doctrine of salvation, we would be talking about whether this person was ever truly saved or not and what this really means for that. That's, that's a conversation for another day. But notice the, the gravity and the importance of the local church recognizing true professions of faith and also recognizing the ongoing evidence of Christian faith and belief in someone's life by practicing church discipline. 
So it's the local church that holds this. And there is no other visible representation that exists for the universal church other than the local church. The local church is it. We are the only visible representation of God's church. If we think about the book of Acts for a minute, the book of Acts is the, 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 the history of the early days of the spread of the local church. Really kind of the, the thesis of Acts 1, of, of the book of Acts is Acts 1.8, right? And you will make disciples in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's, that's the thesis of Acts, of the whole book. And then Luke, in, 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 in his style, lays out for us how the gospel spreads, the church spreads to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. That's really what the whole, the whole book of Acts is about. And if you if we turn this isn't on the board here, but I'm just going to read from several places in the book of Acts just just really quickly for us. And I want you to hear a word that is used so often in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter I'm going to start in Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 8 verse 3, we read but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. We skip over to Acts chapter 11. And in Acts chapter 11, verse 22, we read, The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas uh, to Antioch. We go down to verse 26, and we read, And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year that they met with the church and taught a great many people in Antioch. And the disciples were first called Christians. You go just down to the first verse of chapter 12. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to what? The church. In Acts 14, verse 27. We read, um, And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. In, verse, in chapter 15, so being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and, and Samaria. And you go one verse down, verse 14. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by what? The church. The, the story of Acts is the story of the church. Now, yes, the story of Acts is the story of the spread of the gospel in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. It's the story of how we have, have been grafted into um, the, the family of God by the power of Jesus Christ on the cross. But you could also say this, the book of Acts is the story of the church. And all, every one of these instances is describing a local church. It's describing in one, some instances the local church in Jerusalem, the local church in Antioch, Gentile local churches. The, the, this, the, this is the story of the church. And all of these are visible local churches. That's all. This is... The, the church is God's plan. There, there's not uh, something else out there that exists be, besides the local church that Christians are expected to be an active member of, that we're supposed to engage in the church. So then what is the, the church really? The, the, the local church is an assembly of committed Christians with a shared belief system and a clear mission. Now, that's my definition. It's pulled from various places. And I think about the local church. This is what I think. It is a, it is a assembly of committed Christians with a shared belief system and a clear mission. Let's just think about uh, 
that first statement that it is assembly of committed Christians. The church is made up of Christians. I say that when I teach our Connect class. Um, and then I say it again when I have membership interviews with people. Because people always, some of you have been through membership interviews with me, and people kind of come in a little nervous. I don't mean for that, but pe- people do. It's like they're getting called into the principal's office. I did this with one of our teenagers just yesterday. We're going to baptize her in a couple of weeks. And I could tell, like, there was just a little bit of trepidation coming in. I was like, this isn't like being called in the principal's office. And I forgot she's homeschooled. She has no idea what it means to be called in the principal's office. <laughs> I said, we had a good little chuckle. It lightened the mood a little bit. And I said, Here, here's why we're doing this, right? If we're going to baptize you and bring you to the membership of our church, what I have to ensure is that you are a Christian, right? Does somebody have 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 3? Miss Connie, would you read that for us? Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and, and now is in the world already. Yeah, so there is a level of discernment that the church is expected to practice. And at times in our history, listen, let's, let's just, we don't have to go outside of the Baptist church. At times in Baptist history, and probably still in some places today, We've not done a great job of practicing discernment as it relates to controlling the keys to the kingdom. Um, in, in a lot of places in, in Baptist life, people have been, and, and not just Baptist churches, but, but some people have been able to just sign a card and join up. Nobody actually really tested anything. Nobody, nobody asked any real questions of what do you, why do you want to? Why do you want to join? What, what is it that you're professing? And so, when I meet with new folks that want to join our church, I, I just tell them we believe the church is made up of Christians, and the only way for us to know if you're a Christian is actually to hear <laughs> you tell me how you came to know, to, came to believe in Jesus as your Savior. Me or one of our other pastor elders to, to do that. And so that's what we do for everybody that wants to join our church. They, they need to be able to share with us what it means for them that they are a Christian because we're commanded to, to, to have some level at least of discernment. Now, churches can also go way too far with this. And, and we've got to, we want to strike a really healthy balance because in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus kind of giving us a picture of the gospel says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. That, that we're not asking people to have, you know, college level, seminary level understandings of the scriptures. Again, my conversation yesterday was with a young middle school girl who it was evident Quickly, we didn't have to have a long conversation. It was evident quickly that she had put her faith in Jesus and that she understood why she needed to have faith in Jesus. Now, 10 years from now, Lord's good. Is, is she going to have a deeper understanding of her faith in Jesus and why she needs to have it? Absolutely she will. But am I willing to baptize her and admit her in a membership of our church? Sure. Because she's demonstrating this childlike faith that Jesus is talking about. So it doesn't mean that everybody has to say everything the same way that I would say it, or even have a full understanding of everything that maybe we would talk about in in an equipped class like this. 
But there needs to be true faith in Jesus and repentance towards salvation. And we, we need to be able to test that because the church is made up of Christians. We can insist that everybody have every right answer, but faith and repentance are necessary for someone to be admitted into the local church. And then baptism serves as an entry gate for us. That, that this is what we see in Scripture. When people, when you go back in Acts, I'm not going to do it, but if you go back in Acts and read as the gospel spreads into all these places that Luke calls the church, what we more often than not see is that when the gospel comes, he makes sure to tell us that they believed in faith and were baptized. Because baptism serves as this, as an entry point for us, which, by the way, is what makes us what's known as credo-baptists, that, that we baptize people upon their creed, their profession of faith, and not paedo-baptists, baptizing them upon being born into a Christian family. Uh, this is what makes us distinct as, as Baptists and, and Baptist-like people from our Presbyterian brothers and sisters, and again, brothers and sisters in faith. Uh, but we would, we would have a disagreement over what really the entry point into the church but it seems as if the New Testament evidence for the entry point into the church is, is a profession of faith, and the means by which Jesus gave us to make that profession of faith is a public direct declaration of that faith through baptism. And so baptism then serves as that moment where someone says, I am a part of, uh, of God's church, and then if you were to have to move and to go somewhere else, you could join another church, but you wouldn't have to be baptized again. Um, that, that it's possible to go from one local church, uh, one healthy local church to another healthy local church by your statement of faith or even uh, by your record of, of your baptism. But let's go back to our definition. The local church is an assembly of committed Christians with a shared belief system. Right? So the, these aren't just Christians, but these are, these are Christians committed together. They're committed to one another. It, again, as we said at the beginning, it's more than just a place you go, Right? It's a people that you're committed to. That when people stand up there, I, I love presenting people for membership either through baptism or uh, statement of faith, transfer of letter. When people join our church, I, I'll often say this. What, what people are doing is they're saying, I'm with you and you're with me. And, and, and that, that we're now a part of this big adopted family together. It, and and we're, we're committed to one another. Would somebody read Philippian, the first four verses of Philippians 2 for us? So if there is an encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, be complete my joy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Do, do, you, do you see the importance of, of mutual commitment in the words of Paul here in Philippians 2? That not only is there a, uh, there, there's a mindset of commitment, that we're of one mind, but there's actually, as, as the verse develops, Paul goes from a mindset to action. And he's like, make sure you're putting, so if you're going to be of one mind, it's also going to mean you're putting one another's needs in, you're going to put somebody else's needs in front of yours, that you're going to be, you're going to be committed. Now, in a healthy family, like just think actual you know, blood families, in a healthy family, this is just ingrained the way that we do families. Not all families think like this. This is why I'm using the term healthy families. 
that, that it, it goes without saying that husbands and wives are going to look out for each other and they're going to look out for their children. And, and once their children gets the, get past that, you know, bickering little stage that kids go through, it, you know, it, it, it was maybe you grew up in a family with the, these kind of people. It's like, hey, look, I can pick on my sibling all I want to, but if you do it, right, <laughs> there's, there's going to be trouble. Because it's just ingrained in who we are that we look out for each other. The church should be that same way. That we're, that we're committed in one mind together. And as, as we're committed in one mind together, then, then, we are, then we're serving one another. And, and, and that, that commitment re- requires great humility. That's why Paul talks about humility in this. It requires great humility. It, it, it requires of us to, to have a level of commitment that really exceeds anything that exists in the world, maybe outside of the family. Um, this Sunday, we're going to finish Mark chapter 3. And in Mark chapter 3, we've already kind of set it up from this last Sunday. Jesus' brothers, our mother and brother have come to where he is and they're thinking he's crazy, right? And they're, they're going to come to him after Jesus is going to tell a story about a house divided and they're going to, people are going to come to him and say, hey, your family's here. And Jesus is going to say, my family are those who've believed me. My family, my mother and brothers are those who have, who have believed the gospel. That, that, that this is family. And there's, there's some weight to that, right? That we're, that we're committed to that. Then the church is made up, or again, it's committed Christians that share a belief system and a, and a mission together. If you still have Philippians 2, Barry, I don't know if you still have it open. We'll read verses 5 to 11 for us. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Jesus Christ, who thought he was in the form of God, who though he was in the form of God, sorry, did not count equally with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Yeah, so this is, this is immediately following those verses. This is all one section. Paul's talking about our, the need for being of one mind, practicing humility, and then he's going to give an example. And what example does he appeal to? The best one he could possibly appeal to for the church. He appeals to the gospel, right? He appeals to Jesus. That Jesus sets the example for us in his sacrifice. That the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross sets this example of humility for his followers, that, that the, the, the dedication that we have to the gospel is so central to us that it teaches us how to interact with one another. So the, the church then, this committed, these committed Christians committed to one another, aren't just committed to each other. We're committed to what we say in, in our core value is, is, is the gospel and its centrality to the life and mission of our church. And this is why Paul appeals to it as an instructional tool for their humility. Because the gospel is so central to our commitment 
to the body, that the, the Christians are committed to the gospel, and that gospel, which brings us from different walks of life and different you know, socioeconomic status and different ethnicities maybe, and it brings us from all over and unifies us together. And then we're this body of people that are committed to one another because Jesus, Paul says, Jesus is our example for it. And so then we follow, we follow in that example. So then we're, the, the church then is this committed body of people people that believe the same thing and are seeking to do the same thing centered around the gospel of Jesus. All right, I'm going to give you a five-minute break, and then I'm going to call you back together. We're going to do our, our implication discussion, and then we'll, have, we'll talk about spiritual gifts. So take a five-minute break, and we'll come back together at 7.02. All right, I want to recommend something to you. If... Uh, because there's a whole lot more I could talk about with church membership. I mean, there just really is. Uh, but there is a Building Healthy Churches book. We use these books a lot in a, in a lot of different processes in our church. Uh, but Jonathan Lehman wrote this book called Church Membership. And uh, anything in this series is good. There's about a dozen books in this series. Um, but, but this is a book that, that takes church membership seriously and talks about the importance of the seriousness of Church membership, church discipline. I'll probably, um, I'll probably bring this book back up at, at some point uh, later. They do have a church, a book just for church discipline. Even though he deals with it in one chapter here, they have they have one of these books that, that's for that uh, that I'll reference in a couple of weeks when we talk through that subject. But uh, just wanted you to see that if you if you uh, you can get it, they sell them anywhere books are sold. So. I don't think we have any. We have some copies of some of those books sometimes in the Equip Center, but I don't believe we have any of this specific one. Um, I want you to talk at your tables for just a minute. I'm going to unpack here before we move on to spiritual gifts for the last 20 minutes or so. Uh, what are ways, and I'm going to define this term, that parachurch ministries or denominations help the church? And what are some risks we run in crossing the line of thinking that those things are the church? So a parachurch ministry exists outside of the local church. So don't think about like a ministry of our church as being parachurch. It's not. If, if, it's the, if it is an a, a arm of the local church, an outreach arm, a worship arm, a prayer ministry, something like that, it's the local church. But outside of that exists a plethora of Christian ministries. Internet ministries, television ministries, mission ministries, church planning. We even participate in the Southern Baptist Convention, um, own several of them, I guess. You could say we own or partial owners. We, seminaries, send, mission-sending agencies. These things are in some ways good for the church and do good things alongside of the church. And I want, to talk, I want you to talk at your table about how they do these good things, but also what are the risks that they may run or people may run into, if we move into thinking that somehow they are the church and with the important things that we've discussed about the local church. So just three or four minutes there at your table. What's an example of one? An example of a parachurch ministry? Yeah, no. The International Mission Board is a parachurch ministry, right? Um, uh, focus on the Family is a parachurch ministry. Um, Nine Marks is a parachurch ministry, right? Who published this book is a, is a, is a parachurch ministry. Capitol Hill Baptist Church exists, but Nine Marks is a parachurch ministry out, outside of it, right? So 
Those are some examples. Yeah, even all the way up to a, a full denomination, right? The Southern Baptist Convention could be a parachurch ministry. All right? So you just take a few minutes and, and I'm going to press pause. All right, folks, to, to keep us on schedule, I'm going to interrupt your conversation. I heard some good thing, good things that parachurch denominational things do. Heard some risks. That's good. I want, I want to give you one encouragement, and this just comes from a conversation that I had yesterday. I went to, uh, uh, Pastor Chris went with me to uh, a lunch yesterday with some pillar pastors, local, we meet together once a month, and discuss things happening in our church, and one of the guys asked a question about something that some people in his church have been listening to, and, and that opened up a broader discussion on all of these ministries, you know, and I use that term kind of loosely, but ministries that exist out there that are just pouring the internet with teaching, and I mean, you can listen to podcast after podcast, and YouTube video after YouTube video, and this table even talked about, I think Brandon taught some folks what TikTok was. Um, you know, you... You could, you could 24 hours a day, seven days a week be listening to these things. Um, and and raise a really good question, and that is, even if those things are good, and a lot of them aren't, but even if those things are good, shouldn't our primary teaching still be coming from the local church? So this would be my encouragement to you. Let, I'm not saying don't read other things. I, I recommend books to you all the time. I'm not saying don't listen to other people. I, I listen. To, there's, there's guys that I like to listen to preach sometimes. There's podcasts I like to listen to sometimes. Um, we, we are even podcasting this. Somebody made me listen to me talking about this, and they, a member of another <laughs> local church. I, I recognize that. Uh, there's some irony there. Um, but my, my encouragement to you would be make sure the, the primary voice, teaching voice in your life is, is, this, is this local church because this is the church that you're committed to. These are the people that you're committed to. These are the beliefs you're committed to, the mission that you're committed to. Uh, and so I'm not saying don't listen to others, but, but let that. And what that's going to do is it's going to guard you against some false teaching that could creep in with, without you being, being aware because we're, we're guarding the teaching of our church together. And so that, that was timely, I think, uh, listening to that discussion or participating in that discussion yesterday what we were talking about today. So now I want us to really, I had a seminary professor that used to always say, well, now on to something completely different. And uh, um, th- this is a little bit different. It, it's tangential, I think, but it's the best place to talk about it. And that is, as God brings together people into local churches who are committed Christians, committed to what we believe and what we do together, the mission of the church together, God then gifts people, all Christians, to serve, use their spiritual gift, but in every case that we see spiritual gifts, and this is why I wanted to talk about it today, in every case that we see them used, they are used within the context of the local, to the ministry of the local church. Now, some of them are used on the frontier of the local church, meaning they're missionaries that are sent by the local church or church planters that are sent by the local church or evangelists that are sent by the local church. But they're always, in every case in the New Testament, the, the, the spiritual gifts of the body are intended to be used for the growth and mission of the body. And so... Wayne Grudem, I, I use his definitions most often, says that a spiritual gift is any ability that is empowered by the Holy Spirit 
and is used in any ministry of the church. So that's pretty broad. It's a broad definition. Some people have more narrow definitions, but I think in the main I agree with what, what, with what Dr. Grudem is saying there, that I definitely agree that spiritual gifts aren't limited just to those that we read and lists in the New Testament. There is no one exhaustive list of, new te- of, ex- of spiritual gifts that exist within the New Testament. There are numerous uh, lists uh, in at least half a dozen places in the New Testament. If we were to kind of combine those, it'd be about 21 gifts with some overlap in there. There'd be about 21 gifts that are listed, uh, but there's no reason to believe because if, if there was intended to be an exhaustive list, they would all, all the lists of the spiritual gifts would, would at least share, but they don't. Some of them introduce new gifts to us that none of the rest of them mention. And so I think his, his definition is pretty good there, recognizing this, that a gift isn't just a talent. It's just not something you're good at, but it is something that the Holy Spirit empowers you to do. And it's something that the Holy Spirit empowers you to do so that it will be used in the, in the ministry of the church. That your spiritual gift isn't something that you have that you exercise outside of the body, even though it may happen outside of these walls, but it is something that you use, you exercise as a part of the body. So let's just think about these for a moment, a few things here. First, the Holy Spirit has uniquely gifted all members of the body. So if you, and I teach Wednesday nights with the assumption, I say this from the outset, that these are Christians that I'm talking to. So if with without assumption, without assumption, I will say you are gifted. Now maybe you need to explore what that is, and that's where we're going to end tonight. But maybe you need to explore that some. And again, I have a whole podcast, four week equip podcast on this subject, where we break down a lot of spiritual gifts and talk about how you can know your spiritual gifts. So if you struggle with that, I would encourage you to go to our equip page and look up that podcast you can listen to. It's from about a year and a half ago. Some of these things I'm teaching tonight, I, I actually taught as a, as a part of that because uh, the Bible doesn't change. And so really saying a lot of the same things. Here, here's what we need to know ab- about this unique gifting that we all have, that it, it comes from God. It's not innate to you. It comes from the filling of the Holy Spirit in your life. So when you're saved, the Holy Spirit indwells in you and he gifts you, equips you. We can use lots of different words here but he makes it to where you're able to serve within the body. Now, what we're going to do for the remainder of our time really is bounce back and forth from 1 Corinthians 12 uh, to Romans 12. We're, just, we're going to look at several, because both of those are lists. Both of those are places where Paul talks about the, Holy, about, the uh, uh, about spiritual gifts. And I have them all here in my notes, so I'm just going to read them for us. But if you want to kind of turn back and forth, you can. You can see it. Listen to 1 Corinthians 12. We're going to start in verses 4 4 through 6. He says, Now there are variety of gifts with the same Spirit, and there are a variety of service with the same Lord, and there are a variety of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Later in verse 18, he says, But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were single members... Where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. So Paul's using the example of the physical body as a metaphor for the church, the body of Christ, and how God through His Spirit has gifted all of us differently, but that those gifts directly come from God. Now, it may be that your spiritual gift is something that you actually had a proclivity for before salvation. Uh, It may be that you didn't at all. 
Um, and, and that really is inconsequential to what your gift is, which is one of the reasons I don't love spiritual gifts tests, because a, if you're ever taking a spiritual gifts test, um, a, a non-Christian could take a spiritual gifts test and it would tell them they have a spiritual gift, right? Um, and so we really, the way that we identify these things is, is really by how are we serving within the body? How are other people helping us to see uh, ways in which we're, we're gifted uh, and able to serve the Lord? But we need to understand that they're not innate to us, but that they come from the Lord. And our, gifting is un- our giftedness is unique for God's plan for our lives. In Romans chapter 12, verse 4, we read, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. Paul in Romans 12 says the same thing he does in 1 Corinthians 12, 18 through 20, that the body is different, right? And it's unique for what God wants from us in the church that he places us in. Now, we can talk about this without super mystifying this thing, right? Some people like over-spiritualize life and particularly start talking about spiritual gifts. But I, I believe this to, to the core of my being. Every person that is a member of this church is a member of this church because God desired for them to be one. And that God gifted every man and woman who is a member of this church, he gifted them uniquely for however long they're going to be a member of this church. Maybe it's their whole life. Maybe it's their lifetime, their adult life. Maybe it's a two-year deployment that they're doing here with the military, whatever it is. That God gifted them specifically to serve this church. And if they were to move to another church at some point, that, that's, that God is able in his, in his sovereignty and his providence and its work in our world to, to know that somebody's going to exercise maybe the same gift here that they're going to exercise somewhere else, but it's to the benefit of both churches as, as God, God's plan unfolds for our lives. And so you are uniquely gifted because Nansman River Baptist Church needs the gift that God has given you to be exercised here in our local church. That makes you very important. That makes every member of the church very important, even though, as he says in Romans 12, 4, they don't all have the same function. But we are very important to the body. Go back to 1 Corinthians 12, verses 14 through 17. He says, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? There may be parts of your physical body that you think are less important than others, but go without it for a little while and you'll miss it, right? Well, the spiritual body that is the body of Christ, the local church, is the same way. We miss people when they're gone, or I think more importantly, we miss people when they fail to utilize their gifts within the local church. When people fail to to exercise their gift within the local church, when they abdicate that responsibility and only become a receiver in the local church, we're missing. It's as if our hand does not want to work. It's as if our, our nose, does, you know, I was talking to somebody just the other day that, that had 
coronavirus back when you lost your taste and smell from it, you know, and they were one of those people that still, because some people, you know, there's a percentage of people that just didn't get some of that stuff back. And it's kind of been frustrating for them, you know. Can you imagine going that long without being able to smell like that? would be pretty frustrating. Um, well, that's the way it is for the church, right? When, when the nose refuses to be the nose, the, 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 the body struggles. And so, you know, it, with humility, we should recognize that God has placed us in his providence within the local body, and we need to use our gifts to their fullest because we are a part of what God is doing here. But that our, the level of our giftedness does vary. That not everybody is gifted even the same way, and not everybody is gifted to the same degree. And so th- think about it like this. You know, if you've ever compared, you know, your physical abilities to the physical abilities of like a, like a you know, professional athlete or something, you know, my arms and their arms are completely different, Right. He's got a, a professional athlete would have a gift and ability, you know, would have a physical nature that, that's different, obviously, than mine, probably different than, than yours. And our, our spiritual gifts are the same way. They're, they're going to be better teachers. They're going to be better servants. They're going to be better encouragers maybe than you are. Maybe you're a better one of those things than somebody else does. But Paul instructs us in this in, in back in Romans 12, verse 6. He says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Meaning that the level of our giftedness varies, not dependent necessarily on, on our ability, but upon the grace of God. And what this does, this provides for us a level of dependence upon Him. That we would say, Lord, I want you to strengthen these gifts in me. I want you to use me to your fullest. But I recognize um, that I may not ever have the kind of gifting that someone else has or have it to the level that they do. And I can trust in the grace of God in that in my life. And I can be secure in that in my place in the, in the body that if I'm not as gifted as someone else or you're not as gifted as someone else, we can rest in knowing that it is according to the grace of God given to each of us that we then use our gifts in accordance to those some gifts, as I said earlier, are spirit-level empowerments of natural abilities. Um, so back in Romans 12, verse 7 and 8, he says, he, he, he continues on from verse 7 where he says, let us use them if prophecy and perfortune of our faith, if serving and our serving, those, the one who teaches and is teaching, the one who exhorts and is exhortation, the one who contributes and is generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Many of these are things that... that you could have done, you could have taught things before, right? You could have done acts of mercy. You could have been a leader before your, your life in Christ. But now that you are a life in, now that you do have a life in Christ, you now have a spirit level empowerment of these, that you're using these for the betterment of, of the church. And that empowerment is dependent upon the grace of God in your life as it is a work and upon the sanctification of your life as you grow in your giftedness. Some gifts may even be temporarily empowerments to meet a, a temporal need. I believe this. Not everybody subscribes to this idea, but I do. Uh, and that is that, that I believe God gifts people sometimes just temporarily to do something that needs to be done. And, um, and there, there are moments where there's a, there's a void in a church and God will gift someone just for, for, to, for that moment to fill that void. Um, and, and God, God, God will do that again, according to his providence. I don't know always the way that that works out, but 
I, I believe it, that there are times where God will give people a supernatural ability to step in to do something that maybe they never felt like they could do before, or even felt like they were gifted to do before, and maybe they won't do it again after that, after that time. But ultimately what we see is that the Lord places believers together for ministry. So he's the one weaving this tapestry together. And so because he is the one doing that, then you're gifted to fulfill a very specific role in this body. In 1 Corinthians 12, 7, read, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So for the good of the church, for the mission of the church, for building up the body, each one of us is gifted. And so because of that, we, we trust that the Lord has placed us here for a reason. And so then we exercise our gifts. And to not use our gifts is a detriment to the body. That that the, the body, the physical body, again, suffers. Romans 12, 5, 1 Corinthians 12, 26, both of them say this, this same thing, that we're members of the body together, and if one member is failing to do what they should do, then the, the whole body suffers. Ultimately, we have to recognize that our gifts, we should desire to use our gifts to the fullest. This is what he means when, when he says in verses 7 and 8, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who gives... Uh, generous, uh, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Use your gift to the fullest. Don't, you know, don't think about using your spiritual gift as just a box you check every now and then. But the regular means of your service to the committed body of Christians that you get to be a part of because God has placed you as a part of it. All right. You just have a couple of minutes here. The questions that we want you to answer. Do I know what my spiritual gift is? If not, again, I can point you to the, maybe your smart leader could help you. I'd be happy to help you. You can listen to our quick podcast. But do you know what it is? And in what ways am I using my gift or gifts to build up the body of Christ and further the mission of the church? So how are you using the gifts that God has given you for this local body that God has placed you to be a part of. So you have about three minutes to talk about that. Sorry, I didn't give you a lot of time. I'll pray to close this out here in just a moment.